All right, everybody, good to see you this morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. If you're new to your Bible, that's going to be the first chapter, like the first few pages of the Bible as you open it. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, do me a favor and go ahead and grab one from under the seat uh, down the center aisle. You can work through the scriptures and read along with us as we're uh, working through a, a few passages of scripture today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 27. Crossing over to tw- uh, chapter 28 today, I'm going to read a lot of verses again this morning, and so we're not going to read these out loud together, but I would ask you to read along with me as I am reading. I'm going to start in verse 41 of chapter 27, and I'm going to go all the way to verse 9 of chapter 28. Here's the word of the Lord. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. The words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran. And stay there with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of these Hittite women like these, one of my one of the women of uh, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your, your mother's father, and take as your wife from one from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padanaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabal. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for the gathering of your church and thank you for your word. Lord, we pray for our gathering today. But before we even think about um, the, the words of Scripture and apply them to our lives, Lord, we think about our world. And even as today that we'll talk about the dysfunction in our lives and in our families because of sin, we can't help but think of the dysfunction in our world that happens daily because of sin. But we pray for the city of London even now and pray for the families of those victims of the incident that happened last night. And and Lord, we pray for justice that you would enable 
uh, law enforcement and those who have the means to, uh, to search out and find those who would perpetrate such a, uh, an incident and bring them to justice. But more importantly, Lord God, we pray that you would come, that you would come and, and bring your peace and comfort to, to those people, those, especially those who are affected. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would relieve those Londoners and, uh, of fear, re- relieve our world of fear. And God, that you would comfort us all. More importantly, Lord God, we pray for a day when stuff like this doesn't happen. A day when the world is rid of crimes and of people who would uh, bring fear to, to those for no reason at all. Come, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen and amen. Is your family ordinary? Better question. What in, I mean, what is... What does an ordinary family look like? In the world we live in today, uh, the one thing that we don't have to strain to see is the dysfunction, not only in our individual lives, but the dysfunction in families. The picture of dysfunction has become ordinary. It's normal for us to see sin at work in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. If you're my age, the picture of family is uh, leave it to beaver. Right. Remember, leave it to Beaver. Um, a few years later uh, on TV, we also had the, the Brady Bunch. The Brady Bunch was actually pushing it because that was a that was a blended family. So you had two uh, husband and wife coming from different backgrounds, previous marriages on TV, actually wedded to each other, bringing uh, you know the baggage of of their former relationships into one marriage. Today, the most popular picture of family is ABC's hit show Modern Family. And Modern Family, if you've never seen it, is a mockumentary. And so it's, it's, it's taking the family and bringing out the extreme end of what it's like to live in a family. And uh, the Modern Family has really done, I mean, they've blended together all kinds of families. You've got your nuclear family, a heterosexual husband, wife with kids, obviously, and the, the, the tension and the drama that happens in a family like that. There is uh, a blended family, two divorcees that got married, and they bring in all the baggage from the previous relationships into this new relationship, and we see that unfold kind of mockingly. And then, of course, we have a same-sex couple that has an adopted daughter. That's the modern family. And, you know, to tell you the truth, we look out our windows, we look at our neighbors, we look around at us, and that's really what America looks like. That's what the world looks like. Um, the world that we know it today looks like an ordinary, normal, dysfunctional kind of a mixed up family, doesn't it? The world that we live in is a long way from Leave it to Beaver and the Brady Bunch. But the truth, the reality is, it's not a long way from the Bible, if you read it closely. The Bible doesn't hold any punches. The Bible shows us the the ordinary dysfunction, so to speak, of this patriarchal family. And what we learn, regardless of what era you live in or what ethnicity you might come from, that family relationships take hard work in a world that's filled with with sin. I think the reality is for all of us, every family is dealing with sin. To a certain extent, all of us, we're all dysfunctional. And here's the challenge. How do we deal with the how do we deal with those dysfunctions, dysfunctions in our personal lives, 
the dysfunction that spills over from our individual lives into the families that we live in. And here's the question I want you to think about as we're working through the text this morning. Must we be ordinary? Must we be ordinary? Today we're continuing in our series. We're looking at the Old Testament patriarch Jacob. We're basically looking at the biography of his life. And we're calling it faith, Lessons of Faith and Grace. And today before we launch into our text, I want to do a little bit of review. Uh, Jacob's life is easier to understand when we view it from uh, the life and the story of his grandfather, Abraham. So in Genesis 12, we learn that God comes and he approaches a man named Abram. Abraham is his name that he gets changed to. And so he approaches Abraham of Ur of the Chaldeans and he uh, tells Abraham to go into a land that he would show him. This is going to be the promised land. And so he, uh, Abraham, we're told, believes everything that God is telling him by faith and actually does it. And God gives Abraham a promise, a promise that he would bless him and through him the nations would be blessed. And the promise is such that God was going to give him uh, just a host of people, that, that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the, the, the little pieces of sand on the seashore. God said that the promise would include that he would give him a land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land, the land of, of Canaan that they would eventually overthrow, and that God would like richly bless him, that Abraham would be affluent, and that through him, through his family, through his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so Abraham believed all that God said by faith, and we're told that he went on and did everything that God told him to do. Abraham obviously had some ups and downs, but eventually Abraham had a son of promise named Isaac. Isaac gets married to Rebekah, and the, the, the promise is passed on from Abraham to Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah have twin sons, and they learn while pregnant that these sons will be nations. They'll be great nations. And we learn a little bit about the, the, uh, the personality of the sons in that they were fighting in Rebekah's womb. And Esau was born first, but as he was coming out of the womb, Jacob was grasping the heel of his brother, of his brother Esau. So that gives us a glimpse of what these brothers' lives will be like. And so the boys grew up and we learned that Jacob valued his brother's birthright, birthright being the, the right of the firstborn to the father's inheritance. All the father had and more, the leadership of the family, the land that he had, all the wealth that that family would have had, that they would have amassed, goes to, uh, the majority of it goes to this firstborn. And so Jacob wanted that. He wanted it badly. And so he takes an opportune moment when Esau is coming from hunting, and he's famished, and Jacob has fixed a bowl of lentil soup. And Esau says, hey, give me some of that soup. And Jacob seizes the moment, and he asks his brother Esau for his birthright in exchange for a bowl of soup. And the craziest thing happens. Esau did it. Later on in the story, Isaac is old. He's near death. This is chapter 27 of Genesis. And the story is that uh, Isaac is blind, and that what we're seeing in Isaac's life is 
the, the, the degradation of many of his, his physical senses is an indication for us of the degradation of his spiritual senses. And one of the things that we see in Isaac's life is he decides that he's not going to abide by God's word, the prophecy given that the older would serve the younger, that Jacob, his second son, would surpass and be given the birthright over his older son, Esau. Isaac favored Esau. And so Jacob decide, Isaac decides rather that he's going to give uh, the blessing to his son Esau. His wife, Rebecca, overhears and she comes up with a plan to, uh, to, to really manipulate her husband. What does she do? She dresses her favorite son, Jacob, up into Esau's clothes, makes him look and smell like Esau. And lo and behold, they steal the birthright. They steal the blessing. What we saw last week was the eventual passing of both the birthright and the blessing, not to, uh, not to Esau, but to Jacob. And, and what really the, the story to this point highlights is the growing dysfunction in this patriarchal family. And so our text this morning really picks up in the heat of the conflict between Jacob and Esau. And there's really three, three big points that we should see, three divisions of our text. Uh, and I'm calling them Esau's plan. Rebecca's plan and Esau's blunder. We'll first look at Esau's plan. Esau had lost the blessing. And this really had been a traumatic moment for him. If you back up a couple of verses in the text in chapter 27, uh, it said that Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. Esau's been taken advantage of. Even if you discount the, the word of the Lord that said the older would, the, the younger would serve the older would serve the younger, Esau got the he got the short end of the straw, didn't he? If there's a, I mean, every everything is going against Esau at this point. And I've said this before, but I think if we were to to put Jacob and Esau side by side, that based upon looks, based upon uh, just who they were, one a huntsman, one's like an indoors guy, mama's boy that could cook, we would probably choose Esau over Jacob almost every day. It's easy for us to be tempted to feel sorry for Esau, but I would encourage you, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't be fooled by the passion that we see in Esau's tears especially when you consider the opening verse of our text. Look at verse 41. Esau is holding a grudge. Now Esau, verse 41 says, hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau is coming up with a plan. He's going to wait. I mean, the thought is Isaac is on his last breath. All his physical senses are going away. It's only going to be a short amount of time before he just kicks the bucket. I'm going to grieve two days or so, and then I'm going to kill this joker. And we'll see what happens to that blessing and that birthright, right? I mean, that's what's going through Esau's mind. He intended to kill his brother. If Esau, if Esau showed any kind of repentance before this, before this moment, I mean, it's all been washed away. He is dead set on getting vengeance on his brother. And here's a sad thing. We've seen this before in Scripture. Go way back, way back to the very beginning. The, the, 
the, the kids of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Why did he kill, kill Abel? Because God accepted his sacrifice more than he accepted uh, Cain's sacrifice. We see the same thing happening again. Cain couldn't bear the fact that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable for God while his was not. And like Cain, Esau is directing his anger towards his brother, and he intends it to end in murder, calculated murder. Can you identify with Esau? I mean, we don't, I mean, we don't have birthright. We don't have this same kind of blessing in our day today. But surely you have a sibling that you've been mad at before, right? I've told the story of I got really, really mad at my brother. My parents were at home, and I took a knife. It was a butter knife, so don't, don't get freaked out. I took a butter knife out of the drawer, and I ran him down. And, I, I mean, I didn't do anything to him. But he had made me so mad one day that, I mean, I wanted to hurt him real bad. So surely we can identify with Esau a little bit about a sibling that just gets on our nerve or does something, does something to us that just bugs us to the point that we want to take some kind of vengeance. But I mean, think about that. This is, this, is, this is not just vengeance. This is like murder. He wanted to take him out. You know, many of us, when we get angry, think of, of terribly irrational thoughts, don't we? Fortunately, for most of us, we have somebody that... that that gets in our way and prevents us from doing that, or, or God just spares us. He causes something to happen that um, alleviates the trouble that we could possibly get in. But in Esau's case, um, we actually know that he, he thought about this. He thought about it enough that the word got out, probably to some of his servants. And Rebecca, who, who seemingly knows everything, heard about it. So Rebecca summons Jacob, verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Based upon what we know about Rebekah, we know, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised at what she's doing. We shouldn't be surprised that Rebekah knows what's happening. It's clear Rebekah runs the house. Rebecca is fully in charge of this family, so much in charge that whatever I, whatever she says, Isaac's going to do. And definitely when mama calls, Jacob comes running and she does exactly what he says. Rebecca is the, she's the straw that's stirring the drink here, if you know what I mean. And in Esau's case, uh, we know that he actually not only thought about this, uh, but really it's coming out in fr uh, the fruition here. Rebecca is trying to cover up for Esau's action by protecting her son, Jacob. One commentator says, Rebecca was domineering and Jacob was a weakling. Jacob was old enough to be a man at this point, but he isn't displaying any kind of manly qualities at all. But the journey that God has him on would ultimately turn him into a man, although he would have to go through much pain for that. And that brings us to our second, our second division, Rebecca's plan. And so Rebecca informs her favorite son, uh, Jacob, that her, that her other son, his older brother, Esau, intends to kill him. And of course, she has a plan. And we get a glimpse of that plan in verse 43. She basically says, son, do what I say. And of course, we've heard those words before. 
We heard those words when Rebecca told Jacob to dress up as his older brother and portray him so that he would get the blessing. And here's, here's what we should take away from Rebecca's actions. Instead of dealing with the issue head on, instead of being honest, instead of going to her husband and just laying all this out, instead of trusting that God and his providence was going to come to fruition in the life of her sons, as God had prophesied already, Rebecca chooses to take matters into her own hands and she devises a scheme. And she does that thinking that she can actually manipulate the providence of God. And here's our first lesson. You know, we could read this as a story. These are good stories. This is good drama. And, you know, it just makes for good entertainment, doesn't it? And it obviously it gives us a little consolation that our family isn't the only one that's a little jacked up. I mean, this is uh, this is a dysfunctional family and it's in the Bible, which says a lot. But here's the thing. The events in the lives of of the people in the Bible, particularly this this family, this chosen family of God, as we see in Scripture, aren't meant to just be a history lesson for us. We're supposed to learn from this. And here's the obvious lesson. The will of God is going to be established. What's the will of God? It's, it's, it's what God wants to happen based upon the counsel of his own will uh, in his holiness coming out and coming into fruition in the world that we live in. One commentator likens the will of God to an anvil. If you don't do woodwork, if you don't work in metal, then you probably don't know what an anvil is. When I think of anvil, I think of uh, Looney Tunes. Remember the wild E. coyote and the road runner. They're, they're running around, chasing around. Obviously, the coyote is trying to get him something to eat. And every, you know, every other show, uh, Roadrunner is zipping by and Wild E. Coyote is standing somewhere where he should not. And all of a sudden, an anvil from some mountain is just like pushed over, falls down and just like cracks him on the head. He falls out. He's got this big knot on his head. That's, that's about all I know about, about anvils. But here's what a dictionary says. So an anvil is a heavy block. It's usually made of iron, steel, or perhaps a hardened wood, and uh, it's meant to be the, the, the stationary hard surface uh, for which you would shape or mold a piece of metal. So imagine a woodworker or a steel worker. He's got this stationary hard block. He's got a, a, a piece of metal of some sort, and he's hammering it out, hammering it out, and he's trying to shape that metal to whatever he would have it to be. And the, the commentator said that this really is what the will of God is like. It's there to be conformed to. And just like a bar of metal can be molded into a certain shape or even made thinner into something more useful, so the will of God serves that same purpose in our life. But here's the thing. If you don't want to be conformed to God's will, then it's as if you were a piece of wood and you're going to take that wood and hit it against the anvil. And what's going to happen? The wood's going to break. It's going to get broken. And that really is what happens when we choose to dismiss God's will. And that's the picture that we see here. Perhaps it could be said that every character in this story so far is dismissing the will of God from, from, from taking place in their own lives. It's true that Rebecca kind of got it, but she's trying to manipulate it. She's trying to force the will of God to happen in her own timeline. And Jacob is just going along with her. What we've seen in verse 27 and really even a little bit leading up to verse 20, uh, chapter 28, rather, 
is, is that Isaac, I mean, he doesn't get it. He's going to get it in a few verses here, but right now he doesn't get it. Isaac is, is he, he's still trying to bring about what he wants to happen in the lives of his sons. And, and Isaac, of course, gets a surprise. God's will is going to be done regardless of what he does to try and turn that course of action. And of course, the result is you have a son that, re- that, resents, that resents you, his parents, a son that wants to ma- not just uh, manipulate, but murder his brother. Probably, um, and, and this will lead to Esau um, going astray for the rest of his life. And really, this moment right here is as if that Esau is saying, God, you, you've done this to me. And so I'm going to take matters in my own hand. And I'll just kill my brother Jacob, and then we'll see if this blessing thing turns out or not. I think that's Esau. And so we see the, the fruition of Rebekah's plan in verse 43. Read along with me. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay there with him a while until your, brother, your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there, why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? What's clear here is that Rebecca only expected uh, Jacob to be gone for a couple days. That really is what the Hebrew is telling us here. She wanted him to get away just for a few days, shy away, stay with your brother, and then I'm going to go send for you. I'll get some servants and come, and come get you when all this trouble is over. That's really what she wanted to happen. Unfortunately, her comment in verse 45 uh, painfully points to uh, the fruit of her deception. She says, why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Guess what happens? The very thing that she doesn't want to happen is the thing that happens. She loses, ultimately, both of her sons in only a short amount of time. And I would tell you, that's the lesson of the consequence Uh, the consequences of our actions. She helps Jacob steal the blessing from Isaac, but the the consequence is that her relationship with her her firstborn son will never be the same. There's no doubt that any mother loves a son. There's no doubt that Rebecca, even even though it's not said here, she loves her son. She loves Esau. Maybe not as much as she loves Jacob, but she loves Esau. But the consequence of her action is that she's going to lose not just her, her, her favorite son, Jacob. She's going to lose Esau as well. And not only would Jacob be exiled in Haran for 20 years, the Bible leads us to the conclusion that Rebecca would never see Jacob again. She feared that she would lose uh lose her sons, and that's exactly what happened. And again, this is the cleverness and the scheming of Rebecca in our passage. Her plan to allow Jacob to escape his brother's wrath, including getting approval from his father's, uh, father to leave the compound, resulted in, in her manipulation, resulted in her uh, re- uh, having more remorse than she bargained for, having more remorse than she expected to happen. Rebecca was trying to, she was trying to protect Jacob, trying to send him away only for a short amount of time. And in her manipulating the will of God, the thing that happens is uh, she loses both of her sons. 
But it's also clear she used the circumstance to manipulate her husband. She tried to manipulate her husband, and unfortunately, it falls back on her. And this brings us to chapter 28. Look at verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, the house of Bethuel, your, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. There's two things to, to note here in, in these first few verses of chapter 28. And one is positive, the other is negative. Let's look at the, the positive first. Uh, I mean, these verses show us that, that Jacob is receiving the blessing. He's getting a blessing from Isaac. Interestingly, this blessing is a, a, a superior blessing. It's, it's, it says a little more. It's more impactful than the blessing that we see in chapter 27. I'll point out a couple things uh, about that in a couple seconds. Um, this, this also is the blessing that Jacob would have gotten if he had just waited if his mom and him had just waited and not tried to manipulate God, I think this is the blessing that God would have ultimately given him in God's own timing. What makes this blessing superior is that um, Isaac is using the covenantal language, the, the same language that would have been passed down, uh, that, that God would have given to Abraham, the same language that would have been passed down from Abraham to Isaac himself. There's one word in particular that, um, that sticks out here, and it's the word in, in verse 3 that says company. That's the word assembly in Hebrew. And what, he's, what, what the text is telling us there is that God is going to turn this, you know, this family into an assembly of people. And so very shortly, uh, the family is going to multiply. Obviously, Jacob is going to have lots of children, and they're going to have children on top of children. They'll spend 400 years in Egypt, albeit in slavery, they're going to become an assembly of people. Assembly is a word that both the Old Testament and the New Testament uses to, to talk about the gathering of God's people. And so uniquely, very early in the story, in the narrative of Scripture, God is talking about the assembly of his people together. What, what's the significance for that, of that for us? This is the church. So God is taking this, this patriarchal family to whom the, the, the covenant is given to, the promises of God is given to, and it's going to eventually end up in the New Testament church of which you are a part. That's how you're connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this is a superior blessing. It's, it's similar to the covenantal blessing of Abraham and the one that would have been passed down to Isaac. Look at verse 3 and 4 again, a little bit more closely. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples, verse 4, may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may possess, take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So we can only speculate, because the text doesn't tell us uh, why Jacob is giving a second blessing, other than just the fact he's using more covenantal language. But there might be two other reasons why we're seeing Jacob get blessed yet a second time. Here's the, here's the first reason. Uh, I think um, Jacob is, is he's receiving this blessing from Isaac because uh, um, this is the blessing he should have received all along. 
right? Isaac is Isaac at this point has not wanted to to make Jacob uh, the one that the blessing that we would pass through. He's not the one that he wanted the, the the promise to come through. Instead, he he wanted it to go to uh, to Esau. But here's what the Bible says: the Bible confirms finally that Jacob had come to some kind of sense of peace that Jacob is the one. We see that kind of in verse 33 of chapter 27 when he says, and yes, he'll be blessed. That's, that's Isaac in, in his soul saying, all right, God, uncle, I'm going to give up. Let, let your will be done. But if you think about the New Testament, the New Testament says these words. It says, in faith, Isaac blessed Jacob. And so I think here's what's going on. Isaac seems to have come to terms with God's will and finally says, Lord, I keep struggling with you. I'm getting old. I favored Esau mistakenly. I repent. Let's do this the right way. And he's blessing his son. Here's the second thing. And this is, I think, is very important for us. God's purpose is to make his plans known to his elect. I think God wants his people to know what he's doing at certain moments in the, in the redemptive plan of God. The Bible says that surely the secret things belong to the Lord. There's some things that God won't reveal to us. But for the most part, God tells us. He gives us a semblance of what's going to happen in our lives, but also in the, in the, the narrative of his people by either telling them to a prophet or just by informing us. And I think in this case, he wants Jacob to know that even though this family is flawed, even though they're very dysfunctional, God intends to use Jacob. And I think this blessing, this elaborate covenantal blessing is being given so that Jacob hears these words for himself. You indeed shall be blessed. More than just being blessed, you will be blessed with the very promise of your grandfather, Abraham. And we don't know this. The text doesn't tell us. Perhaps this is the moment that Jacob is being welcomed into the man that he should be. So here's a lesson. Knowing and pursuing God's will can be both purposeful and practical. That's for you. Knowing and pursuing God's will can be both purposeful and practical. How do we know God's will? How do, how do you know what God wants to happen for you, for your family, for, for our world? I would tell you, whenever you're reading the words of Scripture, you're reading the revealed will of God. Read your Bible. How do you know what God wants you to do? Read your Bible. The Bible is going to tell you, and the Holy Spirit is going to help you. We understand what God's will is when we pray. Prayer is a two-way conversation. It's you speaking to God, but it's also God by the Holy Spirit speaking to you, and in, in many cases revealing to you what His will is for you. We understand what God's will is when we are in community with, with the church, in the community with the, you know, the, the people in the church, community groups and such. And when you avail yourself of the wisdom of people who have walked with God and who are spending time with God, then in a sense you are, you can be led to understand what God's will is through people like that. That's how we know what God's will is. But let me give you a family example. Right. Pursuing, knowing and pursuing God's will can be both purposeful and practical, because here's the, here's the thing that happens with most of us. 
we read the Bible, we know what the Bible says, which in a sense, we kind of know what God's will is. But when things don't start to go our way, what do we do? We try, we make it up. We do what we want to do. So one example, I'm not stepping on any toes here. Because most of y'all are married people. But here's the thing. Example. You were told long ago when you first became a Christian, starting to date if you were a single, you should, you should seek a Christian spouse. You should seek someone for your life that, that knows God, that's involved in the church. And, of course, the Bible's guidance for us is don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That, you know, the King James verse that we quote a lot of times, that Grandma used to quote to us. And, of course, this is true and wise guidance. And if you follow what these words say, this is the will of God for you if you're a Christian, then chances are you'll be blessed if you, if you marry a, a spouse that knows the Lord. It doesn't mean that life's going to be always easy, but it, it does mean that you'll have the blessing of God. But here's what happens. Sometimes we're waiting for a Christian spouse, we're waiting for that right person to come along, someone that knows the Lord, that's following Jesus, and it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. We're waiting, looking, waiting, looking, nothing happening. And what do we do? We decide we're going to take matters into our own hands, and we find someone that fits the bill, they look good. They got a job. They're living on their own, not living in mama's house. And, and they don't know the Lord. They don't, they're not going to church. But we figure out, you know what? I can fix that. We're just going to hook up. We're going to get married. And then after the fact, I mean, I'm going to bring them to faith. Sometimes that works out. There's some of you in this room that, have, that, that did not know the Lord when you got married, and God helped you out. He, he, he made, I mean, he, his grace to you was that, he brought you or your, your spouse to faith, and it worked out. But do you want to take that chance? The Bible says when we know the will of God and yet we pursue our own will, that you are as if you were a fool. If God gives us his truth, we should pursue those truths. There's a positive example from verse 1 through 3. Here's a negative example. The result of sending Jacob away is that Rebekah's deception produced undesirable consequences. She loses her son. For 20 years, in fact, we're told that Rebecca probably never sees Jacob again in the entirety of her life. Uh, we will learn in future chapters that Jacob ends up being deceived by Rebecca's brother Laban for 20 years. And so it ends up being tit for, that, tit for tat. One deception led to another. So much so that Jacob thinks he's escaping murder. But when he gets to Laban's house, he ends up meeting his match because that man deceives him for 20 whole years. Jacob uh, wants to marry one daughter. He ends up being deceived and ends up marrying Leah, the woman that he didn't love. Seven whole years. And then he served seven more years, that's 14 years total, to marry the woman that he did love, Rachel. And then he serves six more years uh, to gain a flock that would eventually make him wealthy and for which he would uh, leave and then come back to Canaan. And so here's another lesson. The fruit of sin has consequences and it's usually unpleasant. I actually said that last week, but I thought it was good enough to bring it back this week. I mean, this is the lesson that keeps coming up in this text, right? In Jacob's life, the consequences of sin are real and it's usually unpleasant. But let me add this caveat. Should we want it any other way? I don't know about you, but when I sin, all right, one of the first things I do is like, Lord, all right, I know I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. 
I mean, sometimes it's like you get on your knees and you're like, Lord, have mercy. I, I messed up. But, and, and we should ask for forgiveness. We shouldn't sin, but we're going to sin because we're sinners. Not by nature, but by choice. By, not by choice, but by nature. Both those things. We should pray to God and, and ask that he would go easy on us. But here's the thing. Mercy is one thing, but undisciplined sin leads us to a false sense of security. Undisciplined sin leads us to a false sense of security. And here's what I mean by that. If God did not discipline you when you sin, it would be so easy for us to just dismiss God and sin that much more, all the, you know, the more easy, right? As much as we don't like discipline, we should not want it any other way. We don't want to create an environment for our lives and definitely not for our families, a culture where it's easier to sin the next time. And so I say we want mercy. We ask God for forgiveness. But here's what we need. We need God's discipline. We do. Sin has consequences and it's supposed to. And for those of you who are parents in the room, that's why you discipline your kids. Because if you don't discipline your kids, then they grow up with a culture of dismissing their sin and they end up being hellions or they end up being like Jacob, right? Bad consequences. And so the last part of our text talks about Esau's blunder. Look at verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Isaac, excuse me, when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife. Besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Naboth. We can assume that Esau was glad that Jacob left. No more, no more Jacob. We don't know what that did to the dynamic of the family. Esau was married with wives. He wasn't living with his family, but definitely he was living in the proximity of Isaac and Rebekah. We can assume that um, Rebekah as well is glad that Jacob is gone because Jacob would be able to escape the fury of, of his brother. But other than that, this episode really here is not pivotal to the story at all. I think what the Bible is doing, what the narrator is doing, is, is two things. I think it wants to paint an accurate picture of exactly who Esau is, but it's also bookending this idea of dysfunction. That, I mean, this family is thoroughly dysfunctional, and Esau is a, a principal part of that. Again, um, this is a postscript. The writer is trying to help us understand Esau. Uh, I've read this passage a number of times throughout my Christian life as Esau trying to spite his parents by marrying an Ishmaelite woman. That's actually not what's going on. Ishmael is actually trying to get on his parents' good side. And this is what it tells us about Esau. Esau actually doesn't know who his mom and dad are. He doesn't realize that they're holy, righteous patriarchs to whom the promise has been passed through. And if we would put Isaac and Rebecca up here in front of us now, even though they had a little bit of dysfunction, we would see them as God-loving, God-fearing people. And Esau totally dismissed who his mom and dad are. He's trying to do something that he thinks is admirable and honorable, but he misses, he, I mean, he totally misses 
who they are and what their family is about. He doesn't think this through. He marries an Ishmaelite woman. Ishmael, the part of the family that's rejected, not outside of the covenant family, not the inheritors of the promise. And he thinks that's the right thing to do. And that therein is the problem. Esau here is trying to please his father, but in trying to please Isaac, he does something that's offensive to God. And really, trying to please his father is a part of the issue as well, because he should have been trying to please God. Esau just does not get it. Furthermore, furthermore, uh, Esau marries his third wife to correct his wrong action of marrying two foreign wives. You ever done that? You ever did something right to cover up something wrong that you did? Yeah, you have. Shake your head. Yes, I've done it. Think about your, your, your antics as a kid. You do something royally to screw up, and your parents are going to find out about it. And so you, to, to, to make up for it before they find out about it and punish you, you start doing nice things. That's when your parents are away. They come home, and you're like right at the door and say, hey, how you doing? I mean, your parents know right off the bat, like, something's up. What, you, what, what did you do? It's when you go and you wash the dishes and your parents didn't tell you to. You clean up your room and nobody told you to. You do your homework. You go rake leaves in the yard. Like something is wrong. So kids in the room, when you do stuff like that, that's like a big light shining off. And your parents are thinking, you've done something wrong. Just go ahead and tell me what it is. And so Esau, in a sense, is, is trying to make up for the wrong that he's done by, by marrying and issuing light. And he... I mean, he wants this, the, the wrong to magically go away. And we do that, too, in life, don't we? I think, you know, we do that in marriage, don't we? I think, I think God created flowers and chocolate and restaurants so that us husbands, when we do stuff wrong, that we can just, all right, let's go, let's go out to eat. Take it out and sort of cover up some of our wrongs. Here's what the Bible says. Sacrifice an offering you did not desire. Sacrifice an offering you did not desire. God doesn't want our sacrifice. He wants our obedience. King Saul wanted to go into battle. Prophet Samuel told Saul, don't do a thing until I arrive. Let's let's give the right sacrifice and then let's go into battle and God's going to help us defeat the Philistines. So Saul waits and waits. No Samuel. He gets anxious and what does he do? Samuel tells us. I mean, he goes in. Saul goes in. And he offers a sacrifice. He thinks, all right, we're, good, we're going to be good to go. We've offered a sacrifice. Let's get the ark. Let's bring it out in front of us. And let's go out into battle. And God's going to help us defeat the Philistines. Samuel comes back into camp at the moment that Saul and the army is getting ready to go out. And he's livid. He's mad at Saul. Why is he mad? He's not mad because Saul gave the sacrifice. Yes, that was the job of the priest. But David does that later in his life, right? And God doesn't get mad about it. He's mad because Saul has chosen the path of sacrifice before willing obedience. And sometimes we do that, don't we? We'll we'll give an offering to God to make up for all the ways in our lives that we just don't want to perform God's will. We don't want to do his will. And that's the point here. What's necessary is to humble ourselves and do the will of God. God really wants our obedience. He wants our repentance not a token of a good deed. And so when Esau realized that God preferred Jacob, I think he he really had two choices. He he could have done what he did. They got him into trouble and murder and all that, dismissed from the promise of God. 
or Esau could have basically been okay with not being the firstborn, not getting the birthright, but still being in the covenantal family. I think it's true that God would never have turned Esau away if he truly had repented. Esau demonstrates a partial reformation here in that he's marrying an Ishmaelite, but he offered no proof of pure repentance. And so a couple of concluding thoughts and then we'll be done. Um, are you surprised when you read the Bible and you, and you read these stories of people that are in the Bible that live with and under such dysfunction? I would say that if you're reading for the, this for the first time, you're probably surprised. If you've read the story over and over again, maybe you're not surprised, but you should be. Because if you don't get surprised every time you see this dysfunction and this sense of unnormalcy uh, in the story of God's redemption, then you're not paying enough attention to what God is, is telling us. I think we should be surprised that this family coming from Abraham, this family who knows what the true worship of God is, the Bible uses the word El Shaddai in this passage, could be so dysfunctional. The, the, the question for us is, was Isaac and Rebekah's family an ordinary family in today's standard? I mean, I mean, we really don't know. Here's what I think the truth is. All families deal with problems that need to be overcome. And how each family handles adversity says a great deal about their character. But perhaps the primary lesson for us in this text is we aren't called to be ordinary. You are not called to be ordinary. And I don't say that because I have some other superlative to give you that, that, that moves you above ordinary. I say that because this is what the Bible calls all of us to be. It calls us to be different. Not ordinary, different. Followers of Jesus are called to be different. And here's the thing. It's natural to be ordinary. The Bible doesn't tell us to act naturally. In fact, the Bible comments that natural instincts aren't spiritual instincts. The Apostle Paul would call a man without the spirit a natural man in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We should aspire to be different. And so we have to admit it's natural and ordinary for us to seek our own will. It's natural for us to struggle with God. It's natural for our families to experience some level of dysfunction. But we folks are called to be different. One example, Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul is giving us some very simple commands about how to live out lives as families in the house of God. Simple commands that are hard to actually live out. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives as you love yourself because no one hates himself. He says, wives, submit to you, submit to and respect your husbands. He tells kids in chapter 6, obey your parents, honor them that it may go well with you. That command with a promise. And these are simple commands, but they aren't natural for us. Why aren't they natural? Because we're sinners. These aren't natural tendencies for us. And Paul is telling us things that we're not good at, things that actually are hard to do. And so we're supposed to remember, you're called, you're not called to be ordinary. You're called to be different. But the realization for us should be that we can't do any of these things except by the grace of God. And perhaps that is the, the biggest lesson of all these verses of Scripture here, talking about Esau and Jacob, the reality of God's sovereign grace 
in our lives. Sovereign grace. Two beautiful attributes that describe who God is and what, and, and what he should be, how, how we see his character worked out in the world that we live in, but also in our lives. God's sovereignty simply means that if God isn't truly God, then there's nothing outside of, out, outside of his control. If, if God is truly God, there's nothing outside of his, his control to include our lives. That both in our action and inaction, that both in our decision and indecision, that God superintends over us to bring about his will. And he does that for our joy, but for, but for his purposes. And here's the other thing. It's God's grace. God's grace is obviously unmerited favor. It's God loving us despite us. It's God giving us what we absolutely do not deserve. And he does that obviously because of Jesus' uh, life and death on the cross. God's grace is is really undeserved and you can't work for it. You shouldn't. You don't have to if you trust Jesus. But you put these two attributes together, God's sovereign grace, and they suggest that God chooses messy, dysfunctional people. He chooses messy, dysfunctional families like ours to perform his will and to bring about his kingdom. And so how do we do it? I'll conclude with this. How do we live non-ordinary non-dysfunctional lives. Well, that's a different sermon for a different day. Nick will have to bring you that next week. Here's the thing. We don't wake up and and just choose to be different. That's for sure. I think if Jesus is our model, then we start with prayer. We, We start with believing that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask and hope for ourselves and for our families. And for his world, I think we believe that God, by his grace, can live, can help us live out the calling to be different. And again, Jesus is our pattern. And here's where Jesus starts. He starts with humility. The God who existed in eternity condescends to live life in our world, wear our skin, and ultimately he gave his life for that. And so we're called to live ordinary humility the perfect remedy for dysfunction in the lives that we live on this earth. And I think that's what we're called to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the picture of these dysfunctional people. It gives us hope for ourselves. More importantly, it gives us hope that your grace is real. Lord, you're writing a story, not just a Bible story. You're writing a story in our lives that's unfolded every day. And it has to unfold every day because every day is a new day that we mess up and cry out for your mercy. And so, Lord, as we do both of those things, as we sin against you, as we sin against those for which we are in relationship with, but more importantly, as we ask for forgiveness from you and cry out for your mercy, would you hear us? And would you extend your great grace to us? God, we pray that we would see your sovereign grace working in our lives to uh, to bring us joy, but also to, to have your perfect will lived out in our lives. We pray that we would agree with your grace, that we would agree with the timing of your grace in our lives, that you would find us willing vessels. Lord, help us. 
Help us to be non-ordinary, non-dysfunctional people. Help us to live for Jesus. And I pray that in his name. Amen and amen.